This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Thank you. Uh, first of all, before I say anything, I do want to say this. Um, it is now accepted that if you want to get your message out to the Jewish people, you get on Torah Anytime. And I believe that Mashiach is going to have to first announce himself on Torah Anytime so that everyone knows about him. So stick to Torah Anytime when you want to hear the show for Blast. You'll know where to go. I also want to give a special call out to, uh, to Chazak. What they have done, besides the shiurim and everything that you know about, but over a thousand public school children have been, have been transferred from public school into yeshiva. And it's literally, I don't have to say it's life-saving, it's, it's, it's shaping a generation. And it's something that, number one, if you know of a child who is now in public school, please speak to Chazak, see what you can do. Number two, if you can help them financially, it would be a tremendous, tremendous opportunity. Rabbi Taub spoke about Mashiach coming. We speak about Mashiach coming, we yearn, we wait. But what's it going to be like? So interestingly enough, the Gemara has a very different description than we might expect. The Gemara says, The softa aritz mishpachos mishpachos. Horrible, horrible eulogies. Family by family, group by group, bitter, bitter tears. And Rashi describes not just bitter tears, as if a man is saying his eulogy on his firstborn, his only child. And the Gemara says, What is that about? This is Mashiach coming, why? Is there a eulogy? <clears throat> Explains the Gemara, because HaKadosh Baruch Hu brings the Yitzhahara, brings the Sultan in front of the Rishayim and in front of the Tzadikim, and he shakes them, the Sultan's out of business. No more job, no more use, he's done. And in front of the Tzadikim, in front of the Rishayim, Hashem shakes them, Miyad Bochu, they start crying and crying and crying. The Tzadikim see the Sultan as this powerful, powerful mountain. The Rishayim see the Sutton as a tiny, thin thread, a hair. The Zadikim say, how could we have conquered this powerful mountain? Look at the size of him, look at the hugeness, how could we have ever conquered him? They begin crying. The Zadikim see him as a thin hair, and they say, how could we have given up life? How could we have fallen for that? Ligmar explains, that's the nature of the Sutton, he starts as a thin thread, you give in, he gets stronger and stronger and stronger, until he becomes like the powerful bonds of ropes that could hold back a cow. And I'd like to ask two questions on this Gemara. First question is, who's got it right? Sadiqim see this powerful, huge mountain. The Rishayim see a thin little hair. Somebody's got it wrong. Either the Sutton is this huge monstrosity, larger than Mount Everest, or he's a thin hair like a thread. But to understand question number two, let's focus on how the Ramban explains what Mashiach is going to be like, what life is going to be like then. Explains the Ramban Ramban, that when Mashiach comes, there will be no physical changes in the world. Olam kimenhogo nohig. The world will continue to be as the world is. You still put a seed in the ground and up comes a tree. You still work. You still do all the things. The key distinction between now and Mashiach coming is a brilliant understanding. Every human being sees Hashem. Every human being recognizes Hashem's presence. 
And therefore, every human being is pulled to do one thing and one thing only, what's good, what's right, what's proper, what's noble. Immediately, world peace. No famine, no sickness, no disease, no torture, no pain. Everything changes, but not because anything physically changed. Everything changes because mankind's understanding radically changes And like the sun in midday, brilliantly right in front of us, every human being senses Hashem, recognizes Hashem. We understand why we're here. We recognize the value of every mitzvah, the damage of every avera. And every human being only wants to do what's good, what's right, what's proper. So I get it, why the Rishonim would cry. Could you imagine the appalling... I don't have a word... I blew it. I wasted my life. I gave into nothing. I had this grand opportunity to grow, to accomplish forever, for eternity to be fantastically great, and I gave into nothing, to spiderwebs. What was my problem? I understand why the Rishayim cry. That's the moment of truth, the moment of reality, and they recognize their stupidity, their folly. I get it why they cry. <laughs> but why did the Sadiqim cry? They should be dancing a jig. They get to see with absolute clarity what they accomplished. They get to see with absolute clarity how much they changed, how much they grew, how much for eternity they will be a shining bright star. Why are they crying? And to understand these two questions, number one, who's got it right? Is the sudden a mountain or is the sudden a thread? And number two, why do the Sadiqim cry? I think we need to stop and understand this strange, strange being called I, the human being. And let me begin with the following. The largest mistake that we make, and we all do it, and it's endemic to the human condition, we make the biggest mistake that any human being could ever make, and that's we mistake this for me. Ow, you punched me. Ow, you hurt me. And we start thinking of ourselves as the body, as corporeal beings, as I'm just a human being. Nothing could be further from the truth. Let me share with you an example. Imagine it's Kabbalah Shabbos, and you feel something. You just feel it. It's Hashem's presence. You maybe feel Shabbos. And it feels so strange. Here I am, this physical being, having this spiritual experience. Maybe it's Yom Kippur. And you suddenly look back on your year, and you say, wow, what I could have accomplished, and what I'm going to accomplish. And again, it's so strange, because here I am, this physical entity, having this temporary spiritual experience. Nothing could be further from the truth. You are not a physical being temporarily having a spiritual experience. You are a spiritual entity temporarily having a physical experience. I began under Hashem's Kiseh, covered under the throne of glory. Hashem put me in His body for a few short years to grow, to accomplish, to change the essence of me. And when I'm done, I separate But you see, my friends, it's I, not my distant cousin, not my alter ego, not my neshama. My neshama is going to go to Gan Eden. I'll be dead. I'll be dead, sleeping, sound asleep, but my neshama will have a good time there. I was a high school rebbe for 15 years, and I used to ask the guys, why don't you sin? Well, Hashem will be angry with me. I said, don't worry about Hashem. Many Rishayim flourished over the sin. Yeah, yeah, but that's now. Uh, My neshama is going to burn. I don't want my neshama to burn. I would say to the guys, listen to me carefully. You do what you want and let your neshama burn. Why should you work so hard so your neshama should have a good time over there? You do what you want and let your neshama 
Who cares? The answer to that question is, that is the single biggest mistake that we human beings make. I am the neshama. I, the one who thinks, the one who feels, I, the one inside, I am the neshama. My body is the goof, this is the coat. When the coat is put in the ground, I separate, and for eternity I am what I shape myself into. But I am utterly, completely, totally spiritual, temporarily having a physical experience. And when you understand that, you understand one of the greatest difficulties in creating the human being. How do you take an ashama, brilliant, pure, and holy, and give him free will? I will not drink bleach. I will not put my hand in a fire. If you offer me $100, you offer me $1,000, I'm not going to do it. Why? Because it's self-inflicted damage. I'm just not going to do it. How do you take a human being, a pure, holy neshama, put him in the world and say, you have free will, mess yourself up, ruin yourself, go sully yourself, put yourself in the mud and dirty yourself. No human being would ever do it. Why? Because it's absolutely ridiculous. It's stupid. It's dumb. And this is the great dilemma. How do you create a human being with actual free will? Bechira means I could go this way, I could go that way, and I choose. If I choose, I could be a low, lout, selfish, completely self-centered, I could be a narcissist. And if I choose, I could rise above, I could be other-centered and grow and serve Hashem. But it's my choice. But how do you give a human being that choice? So to do that, there were two steps involved. Number one, Hashem put us into this body. But this body is not just a robot. The body has drives and aspirations and drives and pulls. And within me is a nefesh bahami, an animal soul. And all day, every day, that animal soul has drives and issues and thinks and wants. And all day long, I'm pulled. You see, I who am speaking to you am a conglomerate. Pure seichel mixed in with a nefesh bahami, with an animal soul. Each with its own drives, each with its own aspirations, each one always pulling. The greatness of the human being is allowing the neshama to come to the fore. And the more you exercise it, the stronger it becomes. The more you give into the nefesh bahami, the stronger it becomes. But the human being now is in the exact equilibrium, always pulled this way, always pulled that way. But still, here's the problem. The problem is, I get it. I know I'm here for a few short years. I know what I can accomplish. How am I going to give in to the animal soul? Why would I do something so foolish? So there was one more element that Hashem added in to even the scales, and that's the sultan. The sultan is a malach. He's an angel. He's on the job 24-7, 364. His job is one thing, to challenge you to the max, to challenge you to exactly what you're capable of, no more and no less, But ladies and gentlemen, I would like to break the news to you. If you're really astute, and if you're really self-aware, you'll recognize that there are very strange things that happen in your brain. Gentlemen, I'll do it for you first. It'll be easier. Have you ever been in the middle of a tosis, and you're learning, and it's great, and it's gishmat, or maybe you're dominating, you're speaking to Hashem, and an image comes into your brain, get out of here! And you're back dominating or learning, whatever it is, and the image comes back, get out of here! And you're back and back, back. Get. Who asked the image to come into your brain? Ladies, have you ever had a situation where you know you should not be jealous? 
and I have everything. My husband's great. My kids are great. I, my sister, has, they have more money. I shouldn't be jealous, but it bothers me, and it bothers me. And there's a voice in your head. My friends, if you actually become self-aware, you'll notice that there are voices in your head. Now listen to me very carefully. If you hear voices in your head, check yourself into a psych ward. Because that means you're having psychosis. Because the Sutton speaks in your voice. And it sounds just like you. And it's in your desires, in your wishes. It speaks in your head and says, come on, it's not fair. Why does she have so much? And her kids always look so great. And her husband seems to be so nice. And my husband isn't. And my kids and And that voice is speaking in your voice, in your brain. Good morning, America. That is the Sutton. Rabbi, you want me to believe in angels? Only if you want to understand yourself. Only if you want to wake up and understand reality. The vast majority of the planet are sound asleep. You could remain that way. Most people do. But if you actually want to wake up and understand life and understand yourself, you'll quickly recognize that there are many, many things that I don't want, but I do. I don't, and I do. I don't, and I do. Ah! You'll excuse me for doing this one. It was many years ago, and my wife went on the... uh, Sit diet. Anyone know what the sit diet is? It consists of something like this. She had our first baby, and um, she took the wedge of chocolate cake in this hand, the Diet Coke in this hand, and she said the words, I'm so fat, I'm so fat, I'm so fat. And she went on the sit sit diet, the self-inflicted torture diet. Now, my wife is one of the sharpest people I know, and here she was basically doing that, which I don't know why women do. So anyway, I said, listen, if you choose to be heavy, I'm okay with that. You want to be thin, I'm okay with that. But this self-inflicted torture stuff, I'm so fat, I'm so fat, it's not getting us anywhere. As they say where I come from, the, uh, anyway, didn't do any good, so I took my wife to Weight Watchers. This was quite a number of years ago. I was a young colo man. I show up, I had a break during the midday uh, for about an hour, and I show up at Weight Watchers, and I'm the only male in the room. And you have to imagine the scene. <clears throat> 40, 50 women... And the leader gets up and says, ladies, tell me about your week. And one woman goes up and says, well, my week was going great. And then somebody brought chocolate cake to the office. Oh, chocolate cake, I hear the moans. Another woman says, I was doing great. And then my friend came by with potato chips. Oh, potato chips. The moans and the groans. And I watched this group. And I watched them losing it. And I said, good morning, America. Now you understand what life is about. What's the problem? You made up, you're not going to eat chocolate cake. You're not going to eat potato chips. You have a full diet, plenty of calories, plenty of meals, even snacks. Why can't you just stick to the diet? Do you know why? Because I made a firm decision. I'm not going to touch chocolate cake. But then the chocolate cake comes in front of me. And then, mmm, I'm not going to touch it. Mmm, I'm not going near it. Mmm, why don't you just lick it? Mmm, take a little bite, a little bite, a little bite. Wouldn't hurt. Come on, a little bite. Crumbs, crumbs, crumbs. I'm <laughs> What is going on? Are you sane? Are you rational? Are you a normal human being? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the world called I. That is you and I all day, every day. Whatever your issue is, if it's lust, if it's desire, if it's money, if it's envy, if it's anger, whatever it may be, I guarantee if you actually pay attention, a little metacognition, watch, listen to the brain that you, and you'll find some mighty strange conversations going on between I and I. And you'll quickly discover that I, the human being, am in absolute, total, complete war. I want this, I don't want this, I do, I don't, all day, every day. 
And the Sultan has given the job, one job it is, to just even the playing field, add a little bit of some different language, some desire, in certain times, in certain ways. But here's the interesting thing. What happens if a person puts his brain on on? We were given a Torah, and we were given mitzvahs, we were given spiritual self-perfection. That's what the Torah is. What if a person starts growing and changing? Imagine he starts out 50-50. His neshama 50%, his jamami 50%. In a little while, it's 55-45, 60-40, 70-30, 80-20. If a person actually charged forward, used all their strength, and actually did what the Torah asks of us, says the Chassam Sofa, it wouldn't take long until he reached 95.5, he'd be completely seichel, and the Nefesh Bahami would have almost no sway over him. And that would be terrible. Why? Because then there's no growth. If it takes a year, it takes two years, you grow, you change, you now become 95.5, there's no nishonos, no tests. All I want to do is serve Hashem. All I want to do is learn. All I want to do is daven. My wife says a nasty line to me, I say, I'm not responding. I'm sure she had a hard day. I'm sure it's rough on her as well. And I don't respond. And I'm generally nice and good and kind because my neshama comes to the fore. So all I want to do is chesed and be kind and good. Which is great, right? Except one problem. Check out of this thing called life. There's no more growth, no more changing, and you're done. And therefore, Hashem gave the Sutton a very particular job. His job is to keep an even playing field. So that means, assuming I'm 50-50, he's allowed to speak in my brain, but only lightly, and only suggestions, and only a little bit coyly saying that line, why don't you just try it? Come on, it's not so bad. You have a really hard life anyway, and other guys do a lot worse. It's not so bad. It's not, by the way, you want to hear the Sutton? Gentlemen, ladies, tell me if this isn't true. Week after week after week, you hear this voice, and you're like, come on, it's not so bad, other people do worse, and, and you have a real rough life, and things are hard. Why don't you try it? Why don't you do it? Come on, not so bad, not so bad, not so bad. And finally you cave. You know it's wrong, but you did it. What happens immediately? You bum! How could you do that? You lout! You did the biggest of error, the biggest sin in the world! What you did is horrible, terrible! What you? Wait, wait a minute, you're the guy who sat there for months telling me it's nothing, and all of a sudden it's bigger than big. Ladies and gentlemen, pay attention to the voice. The Chovos of Ovas has pages and pages describing the Sutton. And if you actually become self-aware, it's comical. Except it's so real. But in any case, imagine a person 50-50, the Sutton's only allowed suggestions, very little power. If a person becomes 60-40, his Nisham becomes stronger, the Sutton is allowed more power and he's allowed to fill in the gap. If a person becomes 70-30, and Sutton allow more power. 80-20, more power. 90-10. You ever hear the expression, if I had a Gadol's Yetzirah? Oh, if only I had Rav Chaim Kanevsky's Yetzirah. Ladies and gentlemen, if I had Rav Chaim Kanevsky's Yetzirah, I would be a serial killer. Why? Because what we don't understand is that exactly and according to the balance is the amount that the Sutton is allowed to function. So from 50-50, he's not allowed that much power. If it becomes 60-40, he's allowed more power. 70-30, more power. 80-20, more. 90-10. And eventually, if you get to a point where your body really doesn't stop you, and you're really a genuinely good person, and you really dive in and you learn and you do what you're supposed to, the Sutton is allowed to fill in all of that extra, and now he's powerful. Would you like to know how powerful? I have a little sociological experiment. Find a building with an MRI, and in that building I challenge you to find a metal 
fire extinguisher. Go to any building that has an MRI in it and clank on the fire extinguisher and tell me if you can find the metal fire extinguisher and I'll save you the time. You're not going to find the metal fire extinguisher. Why? Because an MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, is a powerful electromagnet. And if down the hall there was a metal fire extinguisher on the wall, when they turn on the MRI, whoosh! It would come hurtling through the air and smash into the MRI, the magnet, because electromagnetism is such a powerful force that it would rip a metal fire extinguisher off the wall down the block. And therefore, in any building with MRI, they have special materials that they make the fire extinguishers non-metal. Go to a junkyard. Go to a junkyard, and you see cars, beat up old refrigerators, and on top you see this crane, the guy sits there, and then he turns on the electromagnet, and a car, full-size car, whoosh, jumps up the electromagnet, he releases the power, falls down. Electromagnetism is a powerful force that can lift up a refrigerator, it can pull a fire extinguisher off the wall. If you'd like to understand what it's like to be a guttle, what it's like to be a tzaddik, the sultan is allowed out of the box. He's allowed not the kind of control that he has for the average person, much more powerful, much more potent, and that's exactly what the tzaddikim see. You see, when Mashiach comes, it's over. The curtain comes down, and no more job. And then every human being gets it. And at that moment, the tzaddikim see the powerful sultan. Why? Because they grew and accomplished and became different. And because of that, the sultan was given more control, more control, more control, until at the end of their lives, he's like a powerful mountain. How could we have ever resisted him? And why are the Rishayim showing a thin little strand of hair? Because <laughs> that's what they caved into. The first time the sultan comes to you, try it, come on, what's the big deal? Skip chakras, you don't got to dominate every day, what do you mean? Put on filling every single day, come on, what's the big deal? I miss one day. It was easy. It was a strand of hair. But when you give in, it becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. And each group sees exactly what it was. The Rishayim blew it, they gave in to a hair. The Zadikim see this powerful mountain, and each group recognizes what it was, and each group understands it. So I understand why the Rishayim cried, and I understand why the Zadikim cry. I'm sorry, I understand what they saw. But here's the question still. Why did the Zadikim cry, though? If they see the power of the Sutton, and they see how strong he is, why are they crying? I get it why they see it, because that's how powerful he is, but why are they crying? The Rishayim, I get why they're crying, and they blew it. They absolutely, totally, completely blew it. But why are the tzaddikim crying? And to understand that, we have to understand another function of the sultan and understand something that we typically don't really focus on. Each generation has its nesoyan, has its test. So, my wife and I were recently in Italy, and we were in the ghetto in Rome. Very lovely tourist site, wonderful restaurants, nice shul you can visit. Only one thing unusual. The entire ghetto in Rome is two acres large. And 10,000 Jews used to live in that two-acre enclave. Why? Because for about a 1,000 years, the Jews were welcome in Italy. In 1550, the Pope decided Jews are dangerous. At that point, they're about 10% of the Italian population. And he put them in ghettos. And in Rome, they put a ghetto. And the ghetto was two acres large, and 10,000 Jews had to live there. What could you do for a living? Nothing. 
You could not do any of the crafts, any of the guilds. The only thing you could do is loan money, because a church is not allowed to loan money. And therefore the bankers became the Jews. The Jews had to be in the ghetto at night. They could leave during the day to loan money. They could come back. Friday night, the entire Jewish community were obligated to show up in the church. And for three hours, the priests would sit there, you are going to damnation, you will burn in hell, you will burn, you for three hours. They had to sit there every Friday night, and you could see portraits, you could see paintings of the priest up there and the Jews there. I get the Nisayan of living in the 1550s in Italy. If you were a young man born in Poland in 1920, and you watch your entire family annihilated, and you celebrate your bar mitzvah in Auschwitz, I get the Nisayan. But ladies and gentlemen, that is not the generation we live in. We don't suffer oppression. We don't suffer anti-Semitism. We have wealth. We have abundance. We have freedom. We have opportunity. We go where we want, when we want, as we want. By and large, we're wealthy beyond description. There has never been a generation of in history, that has had it as good as we have. All opportunities, all <clears throat> everything's open for us. You never hear, I couldn't go to medical school because I'm Jewish. It doesn't exist. I'm not going to go to medical school because I'm not going to make as much money, and I, you know, I want to make a lot of money. Okay, that I get. But you never hear of any bars, anything holding us back, and by and large, the Kleisol is flourishing, and even more than that, we have yeshivas, we have mostos. Every kid goes to yeshiva. We have chazak that brings public school kids into yeshivas. We have Torah anytime, the largest yeshiva in the planet. We have tremendous proliferation of Torah. Torah flourishes now as it hasn't in 2,000 years. So what is the generation's test? What's the Nisayan? Everything is there. We've got money, we have opportunity, freedom, we have yeshiva, we have Torah. Where is the Nisayan? <coughs> Oliver Sachs was a neurologist. <clears throat> Oliver Sacks writes about a patient who was brought to him who had a stroke. Now, as you know, a stroke, lack of oxygen in the brain, causes paralysis. But this case was highly unusual. The patient had full mobility, could walk, he could talk, he could do everything. <clears throat> but the stroke paralyzed his visual cortex. So his eyes worked. The lens functioned, the optic nerve functioned, but he was blind because the visual cortex was offline. The visual cortex is a part of the brain that interprets. The electrical signals are brought by the optic nerve, and the visual cortex interprets it, allows you to see the image. His visual cortex was paralyzed, and he was totally blind, even though his eye was fully functioning. He put a light, the iris exp- expands, the lens, everything works properly, but he's blind as a bat. But that wasn't the unusual part. If a man loses his sight, he still has visual memory. He remembers the faces of loved ones. He could tell you where he lived. He could describe his street. Oh, there was a candy store in there with my bike. And I, He has visual memory. This man lost his sight and lost any visual memory. He couldn't remember a single image. But it was worse. This man lost his sight, lost his visual memory, and lost the understanding of what vision is. What do you mean you see? How could you, what does see mean? I don't know, what do you see? <clears throat> you know, you see as far away, but you see. What, I, he lost any understanding of vision. He was totally, totally, not just blind, but couldn't even see what. My friends, I believe that is an apt muscle. 
We live in times that have that are unprecedented in material possessions, wealth, opportunity. There have never been times like this. And yet we live in the oddest, strangest times. And the only reason we don't see it is because it looks normal to us. And I'm going to start slow, but we'll build up. Let's begin. Lane Bryant was a maternity wear outfit. And they wanted to put an ad in the New York Times. This was the 1920s. And they appealed to the board of the New York Times, and the New York Times flatly refused. Pregnant woman in the New York Times? That's so obscene. We would not do it. The New York Times would not show an image of a pregnant woman, would not say the word maternity wear in their, in their newspaper, because there was a sense of propriety, there was a sense of normalcy. In this country in the 1920s, look at women the way they were dressed. Skirts down to the ankle, sleeves down to the wrists. My mother grew up in Brooklyn, and my mother was 16 years old. My grandfather was a regular balabas, and my grandmother, my mother made the mistake one day of coming home with lipstick that she forgot to take off. My grandfather smacked her. A Jewish girl goes in the street wearing lipstick? I can't describe the difference in terms of... <clears throat> Here, I'll make it simple. My kids, we, I was a Rebbe in Rochester for many years. I used to take my kids to the Seneca Zoo. Seneca Zoo is a small zoo in Rochester, and it's lovely and it's wonderful. And when my kids were little, there was one question I couldn't answer for them. Why the animals behind the cages are naked is because they're animals. But why are all the people on the other side of the cages also naked? And my kids couldn't understand it because they were brought up in yeshiva, they were brought up in a regular home, and people don't run around naked. But that's what people do in the 80s and the 90s in the United States of America. But we're no longer in the 80s and the 90s. Um, first of all, do you know what this means, by the way? Let's not deal with here. I recently recorded something for Guard Your Eyes, and I think it's a very important organization. Guard Your Eyes has 35,000 members, 35,000 men who are brave enough to stand up and say, I have a challenge that is impossible to deal with. Why is it impossible? Just don't look. Would you like to understand the challenge? Here it is. I'll make it as clear as day. Today, at 6 o'clock, when you're starving... I want you to pass a Wendy's or some restaurant that really you love. I want you to pass it and say the words, I'm not hungry, uh-uh. Food to me is nothing. <laughs> me me, and Moshe Rabbeinu were the same. I'm like a Malach Kim. I don't have an appetite. There's a reason why there's a losa saying the Torah losa suru. It's because if you're a healthy male and you see these kind of images, you're going to be pulled. You don't want to, but you are. But you do, but you don't. You do, you don't. You're dealing with a society that's lost its semblance of normalcy. You'll say to me, okay, it can't be Kaddish, but why can't you be a normal human being? Okay, why can't you be a normal human being in our days today? What is the divorce rate in the United States of America? First marriages? 50%. What's if the second marriages? Higher. What's if the third marriages? Higher still. Single parent home in the United States of America. Most kids, do you understand, <clears throat> children need a home. Now look, <clears throat> when you have a marriage that's falling apart, it's very ugly and very damaging. But <clears throat> when you have spousal abuse, in the United States of America, there are 10 million adults experience domestic violence annually. Domestic violence doesn't mean you burnt the kugel, ruffle, smack. Uh-uh. Domestic violence means domestic violence. By the way, often it's more often the woman who initiates the violence than the man. And there are many, many cases of guys who won't, won't fight back, and their wife beats them up, and they end up in a hospital. But here's the point. In a normal, healthy society, 50% of marriages don't fail. 
In a normal, healthy society, you don't have 20,000 calls a day to spousal abuse hotlines. In a normal, healthy society, you don't have 40 million Americans who are either struggling or addicted to drugs. In a normal, healthy society, you don't have 52 million people who experience mental illness a year. 52 million. Uh, By the way, youth, 6 to 17 years of age. 16% 16% of them have suffering. Uh, this depression in the United States of America, there are 18 million adults will suffer depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, 8 million adults in a year, <clears throat> generalized anxiety disorder, 5 to 9 million people, suicide. Suicide really is not a good indicator of emotional health. Will you agree with me? Suicide, right? No? Everybody agree? No? Suicide, like that's really, really not good, right? In the United States of America... <clears throat> In 2020, an estimated 12.2 million American adults seriously thought about suicide. 3.2 million planned a suicide attempt. 1.2 million attempted suicide. I grew up in the United States of America in the 1960s. It was a sane, normal country. Homes were homes. A father was a father. A mother was a mother. You got married, moved out to the suburbs bought a small home with a white picket fence, had 1.5 kids and a dog, and it was happy days in the United States of America. That is no longer the landscape that we are now exposed to, and is no longer the country that we're in. If you look around at the amount of depravity, an amount of unhealthiness, an amount of suffering that human beings go through on a regular basis, and by the way, I'm sorry to tell you, it affects us also. A number of years ago, I was promoting the Stop Surviving, Start Living book. And I do one schmooze for that. I do the life-setting schmooze, explaining how each person is given a different life setting. Some people wealth, some people poverty, some people health, some people the opposite. But all of it designed to be the perfect life-setting for you. We're all but actors on a stage. The only question they ask is, how much did you do with the talents, the strength you were given? Okay, I think it's a basic, very important schmooze. I was in a, doing a book tour in Israel, and I'm in a seminary. And I give the schmooze, and afterwards one of the girls raises her hand and says, Rabbi, I hear what you're saying, but how do I deal with this when I'm in such pain? So I figured, okay, one out of 60, so I said, oh, maybe we'll talk after. Next question, Rabbi, I hear what you're saying, but how do I do it when my life is such a misery? Oh, let's talk after. Next question. <clears throat> Rabbi, I hear what you're saying, but my life is so difficult. Out of 60 girls in the room, maybe 40 of them had the same question. Rabbi, I hear what you're saying theoretically, but my life is so difficult. The reality is so stark. How do I deal with it? Okay, ladies and gentlemen, if you think this is a little bit unnerving, a little bit unsettling, let me share with you an important expression. Sociologists have now coined an expression called digital native. What's a digital native? I grew up, people my age, we grew up without computers, without technology. You created friendships. You had relationships. You had people you talked to. What I considered normal life. People who are 40 also had normal lives. And then along comes the iPhone. The problem is the iPhone really became... 2007, and by 2010, by 2012, it was quite popular. A digital native is someone who was brought up with the iPhone in their hand. The CDC, now whether you respect the CDC or not, some things they get right. Here's the stats. The CDC website tells us that a child 11 to 14 years old will typically spend nine hours a day 
on the screen. Nine hours a day. Now, we don't do this, but have you ever gone to an unfiltered iPhone? Children are curious, and what they see during those nine hours, I don't know, and I don't want to know. But I do know that a digital native is in very, very serious trouble. How do I know that? Maybe it doesn't affect them. Maybe you could stare at the screen for nine hours a day and not talk to anybody and not interact with anybody, and maybe it won't change you. Maybe it won't affect you. Maybe it doesn't destroy your life. See, here's a little statistic. The CDC, again, CDC's website, 37% of students at public and private high schools reported that their mental health was not good most most or all of the time. 37%. 37% of students are saying that their mental health isn't good. 37%. Okay. Now, I'm trying to really paint a very bleak picture. And I'm hoping you're going to say, but Rabbi, that's depressing. Where's the hope? And would you like to know where the hope is? (laughs) That's exactly the hope. My friends, when you live in a society, when a sane, rational leader of men gets up and says, defund the police, you know something's strange. The police are the ones who protect law and order. The Police are the good guys, the bad guys are the criminals, and it's become so perverse that in society, the police are the enemies, we have to defund them, and we have to stop the police brutality. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard of the police walking into a library and arresting two teenagers who are studying and being brutal to them? They ever walk into a church and, uh, come on, boy, you're, coming, you're coming with me. I've never once heard of police brutality from a law-abiding citizen. I sure have seen a lot of thugs, murderers, people who don't deserve to be alive, and then they start resisting arrest. And the police in any normal, sane society would put them out of their misery, hopefully. I'm not advocating doing that wholesale, and police certainly have to have constraints and rules. But when you're dealing with a criminal element that's so... When you have a criminal record 13 pages long, and you're a violent criminal, and you resist arrest... Okay, so anyway, fine. You want to tell me, therefore, we have to treat the, we have to train the police better, <clears throat> increase, okay, fine. But defund the police, and when you defund the police, what happens? Suddenly crime increases 30%. You can't walk in the streets in New York City anymore. You can't walk during the day, you can't walk at night, and I can't figure it out. But how could you be so insane? How could you be so foolish? Does anybody recognize what I'm saying? I'm not telling you that this is like strange politics. I'm not saying I disagree. You're liberal. I'm Democrat. You're Republican. I'm not saying that. I'm saying this is insane. It's not rational. It's not thinking. Okay, you don't hear it. Fine. I was in Florida, and it was Shabbos, and I'm walking to somewhere, and I see a fellow who had been in my high school shear a number of years back. Oh, good Shabbos. How you doing? And I noticed he was there with his high school, with his, uh, with his son, his teenage son. And the one thing that was a little unusual was I knew this fellow pretty well. We had kept up after, you know, for many years. And he didn't have a high school age son. And it took me a little while as we were talking to put together the picture. Uh, He did have a teenage daughter. But his teenage daughter was no longer identifying as a girl. She now identified as a boy. A Beishyakov graduate, for the record. Now, my friends, how do you have such strange things suddenly occurring? In the public school system in the United States of America, <clears throat> there are incredible amounts of efforts being spent on gender 
identification, <clears throat> gender, understanding. Look, I, I here. It was Shavuos, and I walked into Target. Right before Shavuos, my wife asked me to get some. Actually, I went with my wife to Target, and I saw a huge display. Colorful candy. M&Ms in bright colors. Twizzlers in bright colors. Oreo cookies in bright colors. And on top of the big colorful display, the word pride. Pride. I'm not talking about desire. Okay, I understand a person has desire. You work on it. You do give in. You don't give. Okay, I'm talking about a lifestyle. I'm talking where I am different than the human race, and I marry a whatever. Okay, but here's the point: <clears throat> candy is for children. Okay, adults do eat candy also, but this is with Twizzlers, M and M's, and Oreo cookies. Who are the consumers of these products? Children. And the reason why Disney is putting out so much effort is because there is a huge attempt in this country to influence, to teach, to educate youth. The gender-bred man. Look at him. Some people identify this way, some people that way. Tommy, you're already six years old. How do you identify? Sally, you're eight. How do you feel? And you could be fluid and you could change. And then you come up with strange realities that these kids start doing exactly what you teach them to do. By the way, do you know that much of the material in public school systems today in the education system, in the sex education, you could be arrested. If you were found with it, you could be arrested, prosecuted, and sent to jail because it's so graphic and so incredibly inappropriate. So does it have any effect? Here's a Gallup poll. Generation Z. Generation Z are the 18 to 23-year-olds. Okay, the Gallup poll tells us that one in six, the Generation Z identifies as LGBT, one in six. The millennials, 24, 32. Uh, The millennials are only uh, 9%, but Generation Z, 15% don't know if they're a man or a woman. In Congress, when you ask a person who's now standing for the Supreme Court, and you ask her what a woman is, and she says, I don't know. You don't know? No, am I a biologist? You realize something's dramatically wrong. We're not talking about, do you understand high philosophy? We're not talking about, do you understand Exos, Rambam, uh, Plato? Do you understand what a woman is? No, I'm not a biologist. You're dealing with a wholesale attempt to hijack a society. And my friends, that is the greatest hope. It can't last that long. Don't you get it? Society is teeming at the edge of insanity. It's fallen off the edge and it's quickly headed to the abyss. If Mashiach doesn't come very, very quickly, I don't know what life is going to look like. And that, my friends, is the greatest hope. And I believe that's exactly why the Sadiqim cry. Do you know why they cry? Because in one moment, Mashiach comes in suddenly with a blazing clarity. Everyone gets it. And everyone sees the potency of the Sutton. He was there bothering me, troubling me, and my worst enemy. Uh-uh. He was helping you grow, changing you, challenging you. And all day long, he was there to help you. I think this Chazal is an eye-opening perspective on life. There will come a time when every human being will see things with a totally different lens, a totally different clarity. At that moment, we'll get it. We'll understand the opportunity of life to grow, to change, to accomplish. We'll understand the challenge of being in a body. We'll understand the job of the Sutton. The Sutton is there to challenge me, and everyone has their own challenge. Would you like to know what finally happens when Mashiach comes? I have a very simple muscle. About 15 years ago, I started running, and I was very into it, and I was quite proud of the fact that I could run five miles in about 35 minutes. 
Seven minute a mile for five miles. As a middle-aged person, I was very proud. I thought it was good. I was happy with that. Then I read about a Marine, U.S. Marine, top shape, who ran five miles in 58 minutes. And wait a minute. I'm running seven-minute miles in 35 minutes. He runs five miles in 58 minutes. And they tell me he's a top athlete. He's a top Marine. But then I read the rest of the article. You see, he ran those five miles with a 50-pound pack on his back. And with 50 pounds on your back, if you could walk, it's pretty impressive. And if you could run, it's a lot more. And that's exactly the point. Would you like to know what happens when Mashiach comes? Suddenly that heavy pack is taken off the back. All that it drives and desires that I didn't want. All of those issues that kept distracting me and bothering me. Whether it's anxiety, whether it's OCD, whether it's emotional unrest, whether it's unhappiness. Everything changes brilliantly. Like the sun in midday, everyone wakes up and says, wow, to be alive. You know what Shemona Esra is supposed to be like? Speaking to Hashem right there. But first we say a string of 16 brachas. I open my eyes in the morning and say, Wow, Hashem, thank you for creating me. 24 hours to change myself. Wow, let's go. I have hands, I have fingers, I have mobility, I have eyesight. Hashem, the gifts that you've given me. I look at a sunrise and I see that's astonishing beauty. I look at the world and I see a world replete with wonder. I taste an orange and it tastes delicious. And I see the world that Hashem created. Hashem created a vast, complex, beautiful world. We can't enjoy it because we've got a 50-pound pack on our back. Sometimes something puts in one pound, another pound, another pound. You don't even realize it. But it's the worries and the nervousness and the bothersome and the thoughts and the issues that keep stopping us and stopping us and stopping us. And whoosh, the pack is taken off and suddenly I'm free. I can run. There's shame at that minute. I see the folly, the stupidity of their ways. I wasted my life. What did I do? And the tzaddikim then look back on their life and see the pain they went through. Yes, it was great, but they went through a lot of pain because, my friends, life isn't so simple. It has meaning, it has purpose, but it's mighty rough. And when you understand that I'm the guy inside, I'm not the body, I'm here for a few short years. What I change myself into, what I make myself into is what I am for eternity. Every mitzvah changes me, every avera damages me. You understand the stakes are great. For eternity, I'll be ever great or ever diminutive. And the sun is there to challenge me, to keep me in line. When you see a generation that we're in, and you see the sun out of control, you realize that this is the area. Mental imbalance, mental unhappiness, tremendous, that's exactly the area. And this is the final fight. And the more strange it gets, the more obvious it is that it's almost the end, almost the edge. And I want to close with one last thought. The Masha says the reason why the tzaddikim cry cannot be because they remember the pain. Because you understand what it means to be at that moment. The chauffeur blasts, Mashiach comes, and everyone sees, and the tzaddik sees what he accomplished, what he did. Yeah, the sun was there bothering him. But why is he crying? It was hard, it was rough. But I went through it all. I ran the marathon and I hit a world record. Why would a tzaddik be crying? He sees the pain, but why should it make him cry? You know what the Masha says? That's not shot. He said, you want to know why the tzaddikim cry? I have a mushal. Many years ago, when I was Rochester Rebbe, I pulled my back and a friend of mine who said, listen, I got the perfect solution. I'm going to take you to the gym. He took me to the gym and I met Art D'Antonio. This was a powerlifting gym. 
Art D'Antonio was the whitest human being I ever met. <clears throat> Art D'Antonio got under the bar and he was bench pressing 400 pounds doing reps with it. Now, I don't know if you've ever bench pressed, but you can't put 400 pounds on a bar and hope to actually lift it up and back. I mean, the bar starts bending at the two eyes. Anyway, <clears throat> this guy was the most... He was the coach, and he was very, very strong. In any case, I went to the gym, and he helped me tremendously. I had problems with my back because of the muscle in the back. <clears throat> did various exercises, squats, different techniques. Great. After a couple of months, I started getting better and better. And there was a colo guy <clears throat> who found out that I was going to the gym, and he said to me one day, I want to go with you. Now, <clears throat> I didn't want to say this to him, but I had, a ba- I had a background in martial arts. I was athletic as a kid. I lifted weights before. <clears throat> when I got to the gym, I knew what to do. This guy was a real yeshivish uh, he didn't own a pair of running shoes. He didn't, have, he didn't know what working out meant. And I said, well, I don't think it's such a good idea. This is a powerlifting gym. It's very serious. Don't anyway, he was persistent on and on. I finally brought him down to the gym. He shows up to the gym. Art D'Antonio took one look at the guy and said, oh, Art was a real gentleman. And he worked with him very closely. And he worked with him very carefully. And the fellow started getting into technique. And he started very lightweight. And he started getting better. And after a couple of months, this cola fellow comes over to me and says, I don't know what's with that coach. Every time I get the motion right... He adds more weight to the bar. What's wrong with the guy? I want to hit him. Progressive weight training is about increasing the load. The more load on the bar, the more the body is forced to respond. <clears throat> Explains Marshad, that's why the Sadiqim cry. In that moment of clarity, they get it. The Sutton was their best friend, always putting one more pound on the bar, one more pound on the bar. Because of him, they became who they became. You need challenges, you need opportunities, and the Sutton is your best friend. Oh, it may not be pleasant when you're going through it, but when it's done, you see him with clarity, you understand it, and he's your best friend, he's your personal coach. May Hashem grant us that this be the final Tishabov. I've said that before, but hopefully this is the last one, and may we all be zochot to see You've just experienced another Torah class, brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.